Welcome to the Uplifting Content Podcast. I'm your host, Ioni Butler, and the founder of Uplifting Content. And every Tuesday, I'll share with you conversations with remarkable guests on a wide range of topics. My goal with this podcast is to introduce you to new people, ideas, and techniques that provide value and insight, which I hope you find uplifting. Today, let's talk about the real causes of depression and the unexpected solutions with Johan Hari. Everyone listening to this knows that you have natural physical needs, right? Mm-hmm. You've got to have, you've got to, you know, you've got to have food and water and clean air and shelter. If I took those things away from you, you would be in trouble really fast, right? Yeah. There's equally strong evidence that people have natural psychological needs. You've got to feel you belong. Mm-hmm. You've got to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You've got to feel that people value you and see you. Mm-hmm. You've got to feel that you have a future you can understand. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode. It is another one from our archives. And I th- it's really hard to say what my favorite episode is, but this has to be in my top three favorite episodes and interviews of all time. The reason for that is the subject matter is, is dear to my heart. Um, I started uplifting content because of my experiences with depression and wanting to provide people with content that was uplifting. And so having this really insightful conversation with Johan blew me away. Um, as you start to listen to it, I, everyone that I know that has heard this episode previously has said how how much they enjoyed it and just how full of wisdom Johan is and just how much you get from it. So I just loved every minute of it. For those of you that don't know, my guest today is Johan Hari. He is an award-winning journalist and the author of two New York Times best-selling books. The first one is Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, and the book that we also talk about a lot in this interview, which is Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. Now, Johan lives half of his year in London and spends the other half of his year traveling to research his books, which I think is a fantastic way of living. I might have to take a leaf out of his book and get into the swing of doing that myself. So there was so much that we spoke about in this episode. And just to give you an idea of some of the topics, uh, we spoke about Johan's experience with depression and why he wrote this book, antidepressants and their real value, the link between work and depression, intrinsic and extrinsic motives and how to move away from destructive thoughts, nature as an antidepressant, how the way we live prevents us from getting away from depression and how grief and depression are connected. We also spoke about so much more. So without further ado, please have a listen to this episode. Be sure to subscribe on your podcast player. Please leave us a review. Send us a message if you've got any guest recommendations. And go onto our website and check out our giveaways to sign up for any current giveaways. And now actually, without further ado, please enjoy this episode. Today, I'm so, I'm very, very excited to have this conversation. We were supposed to have it yesterday, but I was ill and Johan had a thing, so it's all good. I was like a dementia patient, let's be <laughs> honest. I completely forgot. It's we my fault. We completely right? forgot and didn't realise that we were doing it yesterday. So apologies for people that were on the call for yesterday, but we're doing it now. Um, my guest today is someone that I first heard about. You did an interview with my friends, um, actually, for their podcast, Probably Science, about your book. Oh, I love Matt Kershaw. Matt one of my favourite people. Yeah, yeah, yeah I love Andy, yeah. Andy, Matt and Andy. Yeah, they're amazing. And so I listened to your interview about your book, Chasing the Scream, for anyone that doesn't know, it's about the war on drugs. And I was blown away. And I'm still kind of like shaken up by some of the stories that I heard from it. I didn't actually read it because I just was so like <laughs> upset from what you said. <laughs> I was like, can I do this? But it sounded fantastic. And they actually said it was one of the best interviews that they've ever done. So I was even more excited when I found out about your new book about depression. Um, I started uplifting content because I wanted it to be a place that people could come to to feel uplifted when they're going through tough times. I deal with depression too. And so the article I read about the book was just fascinating. So thank you, first of all. Um, And would you just like to take a second to introduce yourself to everybody and what you do? Yeah. Hello. Hello, Facebook. Um, my name is <laughs> Johan Hari. I'm a British journalist uh, and I, I've written a new book called Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Real Solutions and, um, and the Unexpected Solutions. I keep getting that wrong. And, um, <laughs> and 
uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a story of um, these two mysteries that were kind of haunting me, right? One is why was I still depressed? <laughs> I could tell you why. And the other one was why is depression, anxiety, why depression, anxiety rising? And I think it fits with the theme of what you're talking about, because I didn't just want to diagnose the problem. I wanted to speak to the people who'd found paths out of depression and anxiety, the best experts in the world on this. And what I learned really blew my mind and was kind of unexpected. Mm, mm. So you... So tell me about your, because you've kind of mentioned this a little bit, your, your experience with depression. So you were on antidepressants from a young age. I've always felt really strongly that the reason I had depression wasn't to do with the chemical imbalance, which is what the doctor said. It just doesn't, didn't make sense. It was, for me, it was my, the way I looked and dealt with and was, was taking on things that were happening in an external world. So would you give us a bit of um, background about your yeah. experience with it? you were smarter than I was. <laughs> it took me longer to get to the insight that you had intuitively. So when I was a teenager, I went to my doctor and I said, you know, I had this feeling like, um, like pain was kind of bleeding out of me and I couldn't control it and I couldn't regulate it. I was quite frightened about it. I felt quite ashamed about it. And, and my doctor told me a story, a story that loads of people were being told across the world at that time in the 90s. They're still being told it today. One of my nephew's best friends went to the doctor this week and was told a very similar story. Um, my doctor said, we know why you feel this way. There's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains. Some people are naturally lacking it. You're clearly one of them. We'll give you these drugs and they'll, it'll boost you back to a normal level. And I felt a tremendous amount of relief to be told this story. And I, st- I remember the first time I took the drug, I was standing... Um, I started a pharmacy in North London and I, and I swallowed uh, the pill and it, it was a little white pill and it felt like a kind of chemical kiss. I felt this tremendous sense of relief. And for a couple of months, I felt significantly better. Then the, that feeling of pain started to kind of bleed back through. So I went back to the doctor. He said, we haven't given you a high enough dose, gave me a higher dose. Again, I felt better. Again, the pain started to bleed back through. And this kind of carried on until for 13 years, I was taking the maximum possible dose. And at the end of that, I, I asked myself, well, why do I still feel like shit, right? What's going on here? Why do I still feel, feel, feel this way? Because I'm doing everything I'm being told to do. I'm doing everything that the story our culture seems to be telling about depression says. And the bigger question was, why had depression and anxiety seemed to be rising so much? One in five Americans is taking a psychiatric drug across any given year. It's absolutely staggering. There's been an enormous apparent increase in depression and anxiety. And I had I guess I'd always had that instinct that you had, but not as strongly as you had, that the story didn't seem to me enough, right? Uh, That that it couldn't just be that something's gone wrong inside all our brains just by coincidence, Mm -hmm. you know, so recently. So I wanted to figure out what was really going on. And and as I say, I was quite frightened to challenge my story about it. Um, And so I ended up going on this big, long journey for Lost Connections over over 40,000 miles, uh, sitting with the leading experts in the world on what causes depression, how you solve depression, uh, and just really crazy places that that just had a very different perspective on this, from an Amish village in Indiana, because the Amish have really low levels of depression, I can explain why if you want, to a city in Brazil that banned advertising to see if it would improve people's mental health. Did it? Uh, yes, <laughs> to a lab, and I can explain why, yeah. to a lab in Baltimore where they were at one of the best universities in the United States where they were giving people the active component of magic mushrooms to see if that would help with depression. And I think the main thing I learned is the first thing and the most painful thing was that what you knew intuitively, Irene, which is that the, the, the story I'd been told was not true, right? Mm. Depression is not caused just by a chemical imbalance in people's brains. Professor Andrew Skull at Princeton University says it is deeply misleading and unscientific to say that depression is just caused by low serotonin. Um, Dr. David Healy, one of the experts here in Britain said to me, you can't even say that story has been discredited because it was never really credited. There was never a time when half of the scientists in the field would have said it. That was super challenging. It doesn't mean antidepressants, chemical antidepressants have no value. They have limited but real value. And I can talk about that if you want but they don't solve the problem for enormous numbers of people. They're a little boost for some people and that's invaluable and important, but they don't solve the problem. And then I learned about what's actually causing depression and anxiety. I learned that actually nine factors uh, for which the scientific evidence increases depression, two are biological and seven are factors in the way we live, some of which have been really rising. And that opens up a whole different set of solutions, as you can imagine, which I then kind of explore. Yeah. Sorry, I know I just dumped a huge amount on you there. I apologise. I want to know about all of it right now. (laughs) The first thing that I really wanted to touch on, because I did a video um, a couple of years ago, just me talking about feeling depressed, suicidal, blah, blah, blah. And I talked strongly about how I didn't like 
antidepressants because they numbed me and made me lose my sex drive and didn't really address the problem. And then I had a few people come back and say, aggressively saying, you know, don't tell people to stop taking antidepressants. And I was like, actually, I don't want to do that because like you say, there is value in it. Um, so like, I want to talk about the, the things that you discovered, but like, it's just to cover that point of there are, there is value to antidepressants. Can you sort of say like why and when they are valid? So I, yeah, I think in the real world, almost everyone is capable of a subtle conversation about this, right? Yeah. Um, and, and the facts are a little bit subtle, but not that difficult to understand. So depression is measured by something called the Hamilton scale, right? I've always felt sorry for whoever Hamilton was because he gets remembered just by how miserable people are. But anyway, <laughs> Hamilton scale goes from zero, where you'd be basically just a drop to tag, tab of ecstasy, to 51, where you would be acutely suicidal, right? It's the measurement of it. And to give you a sense of what a movement on the Hamilton scale looks like, if you improve your sleep patterns you get a six point gain on the Hamilton scale, right? On average, chemical antidepressants give people a 1.8 point gain on the Hamilton scale. On average, perhaps that's the average. Some people get more, some people get less. Uh, so I initially got more and eventually got less. Um, now, it's important to say 1.8 points is more than a placebo, it's not nothing. If you're in desperate straits, as a lot of people I love are, 1.8 points on the Hamilton scale is a real difference to you. But that isn't a big enough rise to lift huge numbers of people out of depression. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned, and this is an, another point which doesn't negate that benefit, lots of people experience really powerful side effects that actually outweigh that benefit for them. Not everyone, clearly. So like, you know, you mentioned the issue for sex drive, massively affect 75% of men who take um, chemical antidepressants affects their sexual functioning. For me, um, it's like embarrassing to talk about, but it, it, it meant that I found it took me an extremely long time to ejaculate, which might sound like a good thing to a teenage boy, but actually really isn't because it, it just puts you off sex, right? It makes mm. sex quite painful. It's just not very... Um, also, I put on enormous amounts of weight, like mm. huge amounts of weight. I know how much of it was due to antidepressants because when I stopped, I lost a huge amount of weight and didn't start exercising. So, mm. you know, the, mm. um, so I think that's the complex picture, which is there's some real benefit. There's some real drawbacks. Different individuals need to make that calculation with their doctors for themselves. But for me, the most important thing is to say, firstly, we need to look at what causes depression and anxiety because actually there's evidence for even more effective antidepressants, which are things that solve the problems that make us depressed and anxious. Mm. Um, and that's crucially important. And secondly, we mustn't tell people a false story about antidepressants. So the false story is you're depressed just because of a chemical imbalance mm -hmm. in your brain. What mm -hmm. that does is it cuts people off from finding the actual sources mm -hmm. of depression and anxiety and solving them. You know, one of the things that really helped me change my mind about antidepressants, or not change my mind, expanded my mind, because I don't want to take anything off the menu. I want to expand the menu, right? Chemical antidepressants should remain on the menu. One of the things that really helped me to think about this differently was this South African psychiatrist I interviewed called Derek Sommerfeld, right? So Derek happened to be in Cambodia when chemical antidepressants were first introduced in Cambodia in about 2001. And the doctors, they didn't know what they were. So he explained and they said, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about like a herbal remedy or something. They told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day he stood on a landmine and he got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial limb. But, you know, it's really painful to work underwater with an artificial limb. Um, when he went back to work, it, I imagine it's pretty traumatic to work in a place where you've just been blown up. He started crying all day, didn't want to get out of bed, classic depression. They said to Derek, we gave him an antidepressant. He said, what did you do? They explained, they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They saw that his pain made sense, that there was a perfectly understandable reason why he was depressed. They figured if they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't have to go into the fields and be in such pain and be so traumatized. They bought him a cow. His depression went away within a few weeks. They said to Derek, so you see, doctor, that cow was an antidepressant. Now, if you've been raised to think about depression the way we've been, that sounds like a joke, right? A cow is an antidepressant. If you want, but what those Cambodian doctors knew is, I think the single most important thing I want to explain to people about depression and anxiety that I learned from these amazing scientists, if you are depressed, if you are anxious, you are not crazy. You are not biologically broken. Mm -hmm. You are not a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with unmet needs and you need help to get those deep psychological needs met. Mm. And you deserve that help. Thank you. Thank you. 
just so blindingly obvious to me and like why is that not what okay thank you um so in your um when you went off and did all your research uh, tell me some of those things that you found the the causes um well what's more fun i'm 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 intrigued to know what you found with the amish community um uh, what kept them so happy well, what to start with? I don't know, Johan. Well, there's something that connects all of these. So of the nine causes of depression and anxiety I learned about, two of them are biological. It's important to say some aspects of your biology can make you more sensitive to these things. I could talk about that if you want. Yeah, what are they? But they, they, don't, they don't determine them. So for example, your genes. Yeah. Your genes make you more sensitive. About 35%, they explain about 30 to 40% of your sensitivity to some of the other factors that I'm going to talk about. We all know that about food, right? Some people can eat 10 Big Macs and not put on weight. I only have to look at a chicken nugget and my face swells, right? Now we all know, but equally I still have, the junk food still has to be there for me to put on the weight, right? So you can be more genetically vulnerable to it, but also the environment massively affects it. So there are biological factors, but something united almost all of the factors that are in our lives, right? Uh, from all the scientists I spoke to. So everyone listening to this knows that you have natural physical needs, right? Mm-hmm. You've got to have, you've got to, you know, got to have food and water and clean air and shelter. If I took those things away from you, you would be in trouble really fast, right? Yeah. There's equally strong evidence that people have natural psychological needs. You've got to feel you belong. Mm-hmm. You've got to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You've got to feel that people value you and see you. Mm-hmm. You've got to feel that you have a future you can understand. And our culture is good at lots of things, but we have been getting less and less good at meeting people's deep underlying psychological needs. Mm-hmm. And that is not the only reason, but that's a key reason why we have this big rising epidemic of depression and anxiety. So that can sound a bit kind of fancy and abstract if I don't give a specific example. So I'll give you a specific example that I think most people watching this via Facebook will, will, will recognize. So I noticed that loads of the people I know uh, the depression and anxiety focuses around their work. So mm. I started to think, well, I looked first at evidence. How do people feel about their work, right? So there's a, the best study of this is by Gallup, the opinion poll organization. And what they found is, this is in the US and Britain, 13% of people in our culture like their work most of the time. 63% are what they called sleepwalking through their work. They don't like it. They don't hate it. They tolerate it. Mm-hmm. 24% of people hate their work right so you think about that this is the thing we do most of the time our waking lives 87 percent of people don't like the thing they do most of the time you're almost twice as likely to hate your job as love your job mm-hmm. and i began to think wow that's could that be playing some role in our mental health and i discovered there's an incredible australian social scientist i got to know called michael marmot who discovered something really important about this i can tell you the story of how he discovered it if you want but i'll just give you the headline he discovered the key factor that makes people depressed at work if you go to work and you are controlled, so you feel you have no choices or limited, very limited choices, you are much more likely to become depressed. You're actually much more likely to have a stress-related heart attack mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I think that connects to this, this, this issue about needs. Human beings need to feel their life has meaning. And if you're controlled all the time, that disrupts your ability to create meaning. And when I first heard about that, I actually misunderstood what he was saying. I had to go back quite a few times to him to get it. I thought he was saying, okay, some people get to have nice jobs, and they're going to be okay. And everyone else is going to be consigned to be miserable because there are shitty jobs that have to be done, right? And I thought about my dad, who was a bus driver, my mum, who worked in a refuge, my brother, who's a delivery guy, my sister, who's a nurse. And I thought, wait, wait, and my grandmother, who cleaned toilets. I was like, what's going on here? And then he kept explaining it to me, and it took me a while for me to get it. It's not the work that makes you depressed. It's being controlled at work. So I went to meet people who'd done this a different way. In Baltimore, I met this amazing woman called Meredith Keogh. Meredith used to go to bed every Sunday night, just sick with anxiety, thinking about the weekend. She had an office job. It wasn't the worst office job in the world. She wouldn't be bullied or anything, but just the monotony was making her so anxious. Mm-hmm. She couldn't bear the thoughts it was going to be the next 40 years of her life. And one day with her husband, Josh, she did this quite bold thing. Josh had worked in bike stores since he was a kid, a teenager. And, you know, working at a bike store, it's controlled, it's insecure. And um, one day, Josh and his friends in the bike store just said, what, what does our boss actually do? They quite liked their boss, but they quite, we fix all the bikes, right? Mm. So they decided to set up a bike store of their own that would work on a different principle where they weren't controlled. Mm-hmm. So Baltimore Bicycle Works is a democratic cooperative, right? So they take all the decisions together, the big decisions by voting, 
They share out the good jobs and the bad jobs, so no one gets stuck with just the bad jobs all the time. They share all the profits, obviously. And one of the things that was fascinating going there, which is totally compatible with Professor Marmot's research, is most of them talked about how they had been depressed and anxious in their previous workplaces, and they weren't depressed and anxious. Now, and it's important to say, it's not like they quit their jobs cleaning, uh, fixing bikes in order to, you know, become Beyonce's backing singers, right? Mm -hmm. They fix bikes before they fix bikes now. Yeah. What changed is the control. And there is no reason why any business should be run in this depressing way, right? We should, they should all be like that. And that, to me, is an antidepressant, right? That mm -hmm. takes on the lesson of the cow because it's something that actually reduces depression. We badly need antidepressants. Chemical antidepressants should be there, but that is a different kind of antidepressant, one that deals with the cause of the depression in the first place. Do you see what I mean? I 100% see what you mean. And for me, a lot of the, the time when I was younger, it was kind of wanting to aspire and to, to get to places in my career. And a lot of depression and anxiety came from feeling like I wasn't good enough, that I was never going to make it, and that I would have this mediocre existence and never quite be able to achieve anything. And that was what was causing me so much suffering. Um, and I actually had a friend at one point say to me, well, if acting is causing you so much suffering, then just don't do it anymore. And I was like, how could you say that? I really valued the, the point of what he, what he was saying. And that leads me on to my next point, which is you mentioned the, the country that got rid of advertising. It's, it's, it's comparing ourselves to others, seeing this whole life of, you know, having the big house and the fancy cars and all this money and all this wealth. And, and then you look at that and think, I can't be happy because my life is meaningless and worthless without all these things. So I would love for you to talk about the, the research, that, what you discovered there. Yeah, this was, to be honest, this was the second most challenging thing I learned for the book because I realized how much this played out in my own life. Mm. So for thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about getting money and having status, you're going to feel like shit, right? That's not an exact quote from Confucius, but that's basically what he said, right? But weirdly, no one had actually scientifically investigated whether that was true, right? Until 25 years ago, when an incredible man I got to know called Professor Tim Kasser started researching this. And, and so he started this research. So he knew already that had already been discovered by psychologists, there are basically two kinds of motives that human beings have to do things, right? And we're all a mixture of the two. So imagine you play the piano, right? I can't play, I'm completely unmusical, but imagine you play the piano, right? If you play the piano in the morning because you love playing the piano and it gives you joy, that's what's called an intrinsic reason to play the piano. You're not doing it to get something else out of it. You're doing it because the thing itself is something that gives you joy, right? Or meaning. Yeah. Now imagine you played the piano, not because it gives you joy, but because, I don't know, your parents are really pressuring you to be like a piano maestro or there's some man you want to impress, I mean, maybe some piano fetishist, I don't know. Or, <laughs> or imagine you played it in a dive bar that you can't stand because, you know, to pay the rent, right? right. That would be an extrinsic reason mm -hmm. to, to, to play the, the piano, right? And we're all a mixture of both. But what mm -hmm. Professor Kasser has shown is we have moved more and more towards being dominated by extrinsic motives in our lives. And the, even more importantly, what he's proved is the more you're driven by extrinsic motives, the more you are worried about how you look to other people rather than whether what you're doing is valuable in itself, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious. It's a really quite big effect. It's been discovered in 22 studies with depression and I think 14 studies now with anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, this is why I would call those values like kind of junk values, right? Mm -hmm. It's like we're constantly being told, live your life according to, you know, uh, a good example of how that works, I think, is this little experiment that was done in the 70s. They get a load of five-year-olds and they put them in a little sandbox, right? And they're split into two groups. The first group is, um, is shown two adverts for a particular toy. Mm -hmm. And the second group is shown no adverts. And at the end of that, they say to all the kids, okay, kids, you've got a choice now. You can either play with this nice boy who doesn't have the toy in the advert, or you can play with a nasty boy who does have the toy, right? So, and what happens is the kids who've seen the advert choose to play with the nasty boy with the toy, and the kids who haven't seen the advert choose to play with the nice boy who doesn't have the toy, right? Mm -hmm. So just, just a couple of adverts primed them to choose a lump of plastic over the possibility of kindness and connection. Mm. That is happening to all of us all the time. If anyone watching this has ever stayed longer at work rather than go be with their friends so they can buy something crappy they don't really need. That dynamic is playing out for you, right? These junk values telling us that life, which make you much more insecure, telling you that you should be living your life, not because of what you think is valuable, but because of how other pe you will look to other people. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I need to mention 
the most powerful man in the world is a really extreme expression of that, right? Mm. And it's profoundly unhappy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes you feel much worse. And one of the interesting things is Professor Cassidy did this interesting other experiment with a guy called Nathan Dungan, where they get a load of teenagers who were uh, obsessed with the idea they had to have like the latest sneakers or something. And they say to those, they get them with their parents who were kind of frazzled by why, you know, their teenagers constantly demanding consumer stuff. And over a load of months, they just meet once a week. And at first, they just talk about, why do you want these sneakers? And at first they go, because they're the best sneakers. And after a while, the teenagers would go, it's because I want to belong, right? It's because I want to have status. Mm -hmm. And you didn't have to ask many more questions before they start going, you know, maybe I don't need these to to belong and have status. But then what they did, which is more interesting, is they, um, they start thinking about, well, what do you really value in life? These are the conversations we don't have as a culture. Set aside the bullshit you're told by advertising. What do you think is important? Mm -hmm. How could you have more of that in your life? And they followed these people over several months. And one of the things they found is just meeting and talking about this stuff, going through, okay, how much of this stuff in my head has been put there by bullshit and advertising? Mm -hmm. And what do I actually think is important in life? Mm -hmm. Just doing that massively reduced people's materialism and junk values, which Mm -hmm. we know reduces their depression and anxiety. So I think people are really hungry to, this is not like explaining quantum physics, right? People get this when you're expecting, we all know we're not going to lie on our deathbeds and think about the shoes we bought right? <laughs> We're going to think about moments of profound meaning and connection we have with other people. But as Professor Kassa put it to me, our whole culture is primed to get distract us from what is meaningful about life. It's constantly getting us to buy and consume things we don't need. Um, and this is why, you know, I went to that city in Brazil, Sao Paulo, that banned outdoor advertising. Um, you know, where a lot of people, there's not been any scientific research on that yet, but a lot of people felt it had improved their mood, you know, to not be constantly bombarded with these messages. Yeah. So, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I actually, I stopped reading magazines um, years ago because I would feel every time I read them that I would want things and that I wasn't enough for not having all of these things. And it was just like, what is? And then that's just what people do all the time. And another reason I stopped watching television because of the adverts. And it's just like, ugh. But yeah, we're so primed. Um, I'm going to read some of these comments that we've got from people. Hello, we've got Flirt and O'Leo on the call who are awesome that always join. Um, Lynette says hello and Omicar. Hi. Hi, Lynette. <laughs> Melanie says medication guinea pig is what I feel like at times. I think that was in reference when we were talking about antidepressants. Um, Faisal says antidepressants, they are sometimes useful. Yep. And then we did talk about that earlier on. Um, they can be. Flirp says 1.5 exclamation mark. I think that was in relation to you saying uh, that the antidepressants... It's 1.8. Yeah. It's 1.8. Yeah. 1.8 said, points. Yeah. All right. She said 1.5. So you can fight to the death as who's right about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's from uh, Professor Harvard Kirsch at Harvard University did the most detailed study on that. Yeah. So there you go, Flirp. Just saying. Um, uh, Faisal says uh, the SSRIs have... Um, bad gastrointestinal effects on me. That's probably yeah, another one of the um, side effects of them. Oleo says, I was put on medication, gained weight and was in a daze all the time. I took myself off them because they didn't get you out of the situation. They just numb you from the environment you are in. We have lost the skill of making good friends. If you have no real family support, facing the world alone is very difficult and draining. I think if we did have that connection with others and got involved in things that make us feel good, depression would not affect us as strongly, which is exactly... Who said the, that? He's called said o, that? That was Oleo, and he's a legend that joins us on these calls regularly. Um, so Oleo, I think, is he's really wise, and there's actually a lot <laughs> yeah. of evidence he's right. So one of the things, I interviewed a lot of a guy called Professor John Cassiopo, who's the world-leading expert on loneliness. He proved that loneliness causes depression, right? I can go into how if you want, but one of the most shocking studies I looked at was it asked the average American... How many close friends do you have who you can call on in a crisis? And when they started doing the study years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none. What? So wow. It's not, it's not the average, but it's the most, more people say none than any other option. And I really see that. I spend a lot of time traveling in very different parts of the United States, and I really see that. And I was really interested in looking at solutions to that. And there's an amazing, which speaks exactly to what Oleo was saying. There was a doctor in London, in East London, who did this incredible experiment. So Sam Everington had loads of patients coming to him 
with depression and anxiety. And he was really uncomfortable because he'd been told in his medical training to tell patients they just had a chemical imbalance in their brains. He actually knew that wasn't true, right? That's not what was going on. That wasn't the cause. But he, and, and, and just drugged them. Like me, he's not against the drugs, but he just thought, these are people who are acutely lonely. They're really insecure. This is not dealing with the scale of the problem that, that I'm seeing. So he tried a different approach. It, I'll give an example from one of his patients who I got to know, a woman called Lisa Cunningham. So Lisa um, had been shut away in her home for seven years with crippling depression and anxiety. She used to just sprint to the shop at the end of her street to buy like cat food and Ben and Jerry's and she'd sprint back. And one day she went to see Sam. And he said, Lisa, I'll carry on giving the drugs, don't worry, but I'm also going to prescribe something else. I'm going to prescribe for you to take part in a group. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was known as Dog Shit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like. It was just scrub land where dogs would, would shit. And um, Sam said, what, what we're going to do, we're going to give you loads of support. What we want is twice a week, we'd like you and us and a group of depressed and anxious people to meet, and we're going to figure out how to turn this into something beautiful. First meeting, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety, right? Mm. She turns up and um, the group has these very awkward conversations at first. But as the weeks go by, firstly, they've got something to talk about that's not how terrible they feel. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, well, not as importantly, they started to teach themselves gardening. There's actually loads of evidence that interacting with the natural world is an incredibly 100%. powerful antidepressant. I preach I can, that uh, all the time. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah. I can actually explain why, if you like, which is really interesting evidence about that. But, but, what, but the way Lisa put it, so one of the things that happened is as they were interacting, they started to solve each other's problems. So, for example, there was one guy who used to sleep on the bus. He was sleeping on the bus. Lisa was like, of course you're depressed. You're sleeping on the bus. She started harassing the local authorities to get him a house. It was the first thing she'd done for someone else in years. She felt great about herself. She got him a house. Um, and the way Lisa puts it, and lots of the other people that put it, as the flowers began to bloom, we began to bloom. Mm. There was a study in Norway that found a very similar program was twice as effective in moving people on the Hamilton scale as chemical antidepressants. Mm. And I think the reason is obvious. Exactly what, what your commenter was saying. Um, it was dealing with the reasons why they were depressed and anxious. One of the key reasons, not all of them. They were profoundly cut off from other people and they were cut off from the natural world. In Lost Connections, my book, I, I go through seven antidepressants that are like that, that are about solving why we feel this way in the first place. Mm-hmm. Powerful. What's the, what's the science behind being in nature? Because oh, I'm so all about nature, that. A friend of mine who you should totally interview, Dr. Isabel yeah. Benke, who is the most amazing person ever. She's a Chilean primatologist and super hard. She, she said she would only explain this to me if I would walk up a mountain with her. So she forced <laughs> me to. But so Isabel has done loads of this interesting research, but lots of other people have done it as well. Um, so Isabel showed that, so we, it's well documented, animals in zoos often go crazy and display behavior that is like depression. Mm -hmm. Parrots will rip out their feathers. Mm -hmm. Horses will start swaying obsessively. Mm -hmm. Um, Elephants will grind their tusks against the wall, tusks of their pride and joy in the wild, grind their tusks against the wall in despair. They'll sleep upright for years, which they never do in the wild. They're deprived of their habitat and it causes them agony. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of evidence. So I'll give you an example that something similar is happening with humans. There's a prison in, in Michigan. It's the state prison where not by design, just by coincidence, one part of the prison looked out over green space, trees and everything, and another part of the prison looked out over just bare concrete. When this was studied, they found that the people who looked out over greenery were 23% less likely to develop mental health problems than the people who were looking out over concrete. There's loads of evidence about this uh, that I go through in Lost Connections. And, and, and I was interested in why, and it's also interesting that it's related to why psychedelics seem to work for depression as well, mm-hmm. psychedelic drugs although there's a caveat to that that I can uh, get me to explain. So one of the things that happens when you're exposed to nature, the natural world, is most people feel a sense of awe. So your sense of ego drops away and you get a really strong sense, oh, I'm connected to all of this. I'm small, the world is big. I'm part of this big tapestry of life, right? Mm -hmm. And partly what depression is, is being trapped in your own self, your own ego, being in it rattling around and not being able to get out of that. So creating senses of awe is really powerful. One of the ways we know this 
is um, so I interviewed loads of scientists all over the world who've been doing this new research and giving people psychedelics to see if it will help with things like addiction, depression. Uh, so psychedelics, particularly psilocybin, which is the active component in magic mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And they found something, they found loads of fascinating things, but there's a little subset of what they found that particularly blew my mind. So there was um, a study they did where they gave really long-term smokers, uh, people who tried loads of things to stop smoking, three doses of psilocybin over a couple of months, right? I mean, my mother is an extremely hardcore smoker. There's a photo of me and her when I'm a baby. She's breastfeeding me, smoking and resting the ashtray on my stomach. So I understand hardcore smoking, right? Uh, and and <laughs> I know, when I showed her that, she was like, you were a difficult baby. I needed that fucking cigarette. But anyway, the... Um, but, so they give these hardcore smokers psilocybin and 80% of them, 80% stopped smoking and were still not smoking more than a year later. Wow. It was mind blowing. And that, why? So they do this subset of the research. It's also been early, but really powerful results with things like depression and addiction. What they found was when you take psilocybin, most people have something like a spiritual experience, right? You feel intensely connected to the natural world or to other people. You're, the part of you that thinks about ego just shuts down, right? So you feel this intense connection. But that varies. So some people don't have that. Some people can take psilocybin. They don't have that kind of that spiritual experience. And some people have a super intense spiritual experience. What they found was the positive effects correlate exactly, almost exactly, with the intensity of your spiritual experience. So if you don't have a spiritual experience, you don't get a reduction in depression, you don't get a reduction in addiction. If you have a really intense one, you quite have quite a powerful reduction. And I think that's, there's a few things about that that are really interesting. Giving people an experience of deep connection reduces depression and anxiety. Again, it tells us that, connect, that depression is about being disconnected from the things that matter. Yes. But also there's a kind of catch to that, which is I really want to be careful to say it is not, that psilocybin, I don't, we mustn't make the claims for psychedelics that were made for antidepressants in the 90s, that it flips a chemical switch in people's brains and sorts them out. What it gives you is a learning experience, which you then have to integrate into your life if you can change your life. So there was an example, Robin Carhart-Harris, who led the study, it was one of the people who led the studies in London where they did it, gave people, depressed people psilocybin, explained to me, one woman who was very depressed, they give her the psilocybin, she has this huge... Uh, spiritual experience and her depression massively abates and then she goes back to the kind of horrible constrained job that she had in a horrible office and you she just couldn't live in a way that was compatible with those insights right and her depression came back mm. a big part of my argument in lost connections is the way we live as a society prevents people from getting out of depression mm. and I'm certainly not saying to depressed and anxious people, hey, it's your job to fix this, right? One of my closest relatives is a struggling single mother who's working every hour she can to pay the rent to keep her, you know, she gets home and she collapses because she's so tired. The idea of saying to her, it's your job to fix our society and it's your job to democratise your workplace and do all these things would be cruel, right? We've got to change the society so more people are free to change their lives. Up to now, we've put the onus for fixing depression only on depressed people. Mm. We don't do that with other things. We don't say that car crashes should only be solved by people who've been mangled in car crashes, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone has to have seatbelts and respect the speed limits and do a driving test mm-hmm. and that has airbags and gets arrested if they do a DUI. Mm-hmm. We need big social change. Part of the problem is, because what I'm saying is, the biological story we've been told is way too simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, what a lot of people think I'm then saying is, who haven't read the book, obviously, is, well, then it's on you to sort it. And that is not true. There's another category, which is not your biology, not you as an individual, but all of us together. And that's where we find the solutions in this social. There are things that individuals can do that I go through in the book, which, which gives some help. But the biggest solution, and this is not just some wacky kind of left-wing position. This is the position of the World Health Organization. World Health Organization explained in 2011, mental health is produced socially. It's a social indicator. It requires social as well as individual solutions. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is the kind of mainstream science. It's just never explained to ordinary people. Mm-hmm. It's never explained to me. I mean, at 13 years, I was prescribed antidepressants. No doctor even asked me, is there any reason you might feel this way? It's just makes me so mad makes yeah. me so mad but that's just that's kind of a way that a lot of medicine is like i was looking into a lot of nutrition stuff um considering being a nutritionist everything is all about masking the symptoms not addressing the cause and just in healthcare that needs such a serious overhaul like 
stop being so stupid stop putting band-aids over things and fix what's going like what is causing these things like but that I think you're totally right and that requires a really big perspective shift so one example one thing that always shocks me, i spend a lot of my life in the u.s one mm. thing that always shocks me is the existence of indigestion pills right mm. so you'll be having dinner with someone and they'll take an indigestion pill and you go but wait indigestion isn't a malfunction Mm. It's a signal from your body that something you're eating too fast. Mm -hmm. it's actually, you really need to listen to that signal. Don't get rid of it because yeah. that's actually, otherwise you're going to eat too fast. You're going to give your damage, your yeah. internal organs. You're going to be really, you're going to be unwell. Right. Yeah. And now obviously indigestion is trivial compared <coughs> to depression, but I had to do this really difficult shit because depression is the most painful thing that's ever happened to me. And yet what I was learning is that in a similar way, depression is a signal right? Depression is a signal that your deepest needs are not being met. Yeah. And we don't want to pathologize that signal, right? What we want to do is listen to that signal, honor it, and help the individual to get through it. It's an alarm bell going off. And the fact that such a huge number of people around us are depressed and anxious is telling us something's gone really wrong with the way we live. Mm. And instead of saying that they're all just crazy and they need to be drugged, there is value for drugs, but instead of just saying that, we need to listen to them and, and solve the problem. You know, there's a really dark example of this. This is one of the things that really shocked me in the research. So in the 1970s, something was discovered about depression that was regarded as so inconvenient that it was kind of, well, shut away. Mm -hmm. So in the 1970s, American psychiatrists for the first time drew up a checklist of symptoms for depression and anxiety, right? Um, so that you could have kind of standardized diagnosis across the whole country, right? So it's a list of 10 symptoms, pretty obvious things like feeling worthless, um, persistent low mood. And what they said to psychiatrists and doctors is, if someone shows more than five of these symptoms for more than two weeks, you should diagnose them with depression, right? And give them uh, you know, care. So they send all this out and psychiatrists start using it. But what happened next was really interesting loads of psychiatrists start to come back and go, well, we've got a problem here. If we just use this checklist, like you've told us, we should be diagnosing every single grieving person as mentally ill because mm -hmm. everyone who's lost someone they love shows these symptoms, right? Mm -hmm. So the psychiatrists meet again. They're like, oh shit. Right. Okay. So they invented something called the grief loophole mm -hmm. the gr or the grief exception, where they basically say, use all these symptoms to diagnose people unless someone they love has died in the last year, in which case it doesn't count. Right? So they start using that again. But that started to beg all these questions. Wait a minute, you're telling us that depression is a chemical imbalance in the brain that we just diagnosed with a checklist, except in one case, where there's one case where it's actually a response to something in the person's life. But why, why is that the only thing in life that means that you might reasonably feel this way? Why not if you've lost your house? Why not if you've lost your job? Why not if you're stuck in a shit job for the next 40 mm -hmm. years? Why, once you admit that there's a context to it, that it's not just a chemical imbalance that you can diagnose in a checklist, that opens up a whole other conversation. And that was so inconvenient that they just got rid of the grief exception. It doesn't exist anymore. So now, if your baby dies at 10 a.m., you could be diagnosed, you know, straight away with a mental, a mental illness. In fact, uh, Dr. Joanne Cassiatore, whose own baby died in childbirth, Cheyenne, um, has done this research. 32% of grieving parents in the United States are drugged in the first 48 hours, which disrupts the grief. And you think that shows how much we've missed, as Joanne says to me, and she's, an, she's another person you should speak to. She's an mm. amazing person. She says, you know, it just shows that we don't understand human suffering. No. Grief isn't a pathology. We grieve because we've loved, right? Yeah. Grief is a form of love. And I, I think the fact that depression and grief have the same symptoms also tells us something. I think depression is a form of grief for your own life not going as it should for your own needs yeah. not being met wow that's a fantastic quote that we're going to capture and share <laughs> no, oh, really. thank you it's that's that's exactly what it is that's exactly what it is wow i'm going to read a couple more comments because we've had so many and hello comment people yay um someone was asking that their friend had um a friend has bipolar and wait where did that one go Boo, 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 boo. Someone's had bipolar and um, what, what would you suggest for that? I think it was. I kind of saw it and now it's gone away somewhere. Sure. So, with, so in terms how, of how do I help a friend? That was it. How do I help a friend with bipolar depressive disorder who's in a manic episode? 
So first thing I would say is you should be really proud of yourself for wanting to help your friend. That's really important and it's a really amazing thing. Um, so in terms of, so with all forms of mental health problems, there are three kinds of causes. There's biological causes, psychological causes, which are how you think about yourself, which I think is what you were talking about earlier, Ione, mm. and, and environmental causes, which are a lot of the things we've been talking about up to now. And with bipolar disorder, so that, and all three of those factors play out to some degree. And even if you think about something like dementia, which is obviously driven by something biological, we know that socially isolated people develop dementia much faster and it gets much worse. So even something where there's a huge biological factor like dementia has a social and psychological element as well, big social and psychological element. In the same way, with bipolar disorder, there is a, a bigger and more substantial biological component than with uh, other forms of depression. Um, so uh, there's a stronger case for medication with, with bipolar people than there is. And there's some case for medication with, with uh, other forms of depression, but there's an even stronger case with, with bipolar disorder. Um, but uh, Professor Joanna Moncrief put it to me really well. She said, you know, bipolar is more like taking an amphetamine and then experiencing a come down. There's an aspect of that. But all the social factors that we're talking about also massively aggravate mm -hmm. bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. so, if, so if people are lonely, they are much more likely it will get worse. And I go through these nine causes in the book. So one thing I would say is just being present with your friend and making sure they're not lonely mm -hmm. and not cut off would be a really significant example. I mean, I go through lots of solutions in the book, but that's one that comes immediately to mind. And it's so moving that the person wants to do that already that, you know, because a lot of people in that position get less love rather than more and they actually need more love. Um, so, and then just finally, one of the things that I was curious about that you said earlier, the, um, the Amish community, what, did, what was it that you found in them that made them happy? This was so challenging to me. So I went to this Amish community in a place called Elkhart Lagrange, and there's all this evidence the Amish have freakishly low levels of depression. And I went and spent time with them. And um, now I don't want to romanticize the Amish. They're terrible towards gay people. They have terrible views about women. It's very clear. I, I do not think we should all convert to being the Amish. But I did see they have something that we don't have, right? So people might not know the Amish um, live off the grid. They don't have electricity. They don't travel. They don't use cars. So they only travel as far as a horse can take them. And, but one of the really fascinating things about the Amish is one of the reasons why they are never classed as a cult by anyone, any expert, is that when you're 16, the Amish make you leave and go and live in what they call the English world, our world, right? It's called going on Rumspringer. And then when two years later, you have to decide whether you want to come back and live as an Amish. And you can still come back and visit if you don't, if you don't decide to become Amish, but that's, you've got to make that decision for the rest of your life at that point. And 80% of them choose to come back and 20% choose to stay in, in the English, so-called English world. And so they know our world really well. Right. So I was saying to them, why did you choose to come back? What's going on? And, and one of them said to me, uh, a guy called Lauren Beachy, look, there are th of course there are things I miss. I loved that 70s show. I would love to go truck in across the country. But if I choose those things, I will not be present with my community. I wouldn't see my neighbours. I wouldn't see my friends. I wouldn't see my children. That he said that by, and, and he said this thing that really challenged me. He said, you know, Weight Watchers. And I was like, yeah. And he said, well, the point of Weight Watchers is you couldn't lose weight on your own, but you can do it as a group. I, the Amish is like that. And I said, wait, are you saying like the Amish is like Weight Watchers for the problems of Western civilization? And he said, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And it was really challenging because this idea that we, we always think the solution in our culture is to have more, right? And actually what they showed was the solution is to have less and connect more. Yes. And that was really that's not how I was raised to think, right? That's yeah. not how anyone in this country, more 18 month old children um, recognize the McDonald's M than know their own surname, right? So we are just immersed in this kind of consumerist mentality from the moment we're born. And even things like uh, one, another guy, um, uh, Freeman Lee Miller in the Amish village said to me, in the Amish town said to me, he didn't understand how people raised children in our world because how do you raise your kids when you're alone? right? Mm. When you're a fragmented family, they had kids running around the whole time being watched by loads of adults. Uh, you know, he just couldn't understand. And it made me think of there's an incredible study that found in Britain, I'm sure it's as bad in the US. I know it's as bad in the US. 
The average British child spends less time outdoors than the average maximum security prisoner. Because, no. because by law, a maximum security prisoner has to have 75 minutes a day. Most British kids don't get that. So you think we've got this sick culture where we're isolated, we're alone, we're screaming at each other through screens, we're taught to value junk, we keep our children as prisoners, and we wonder why we feel like such shit. And we're told it's just because there's something wrong between your ears, right? Years from now, people will look back and think, what the fuck were they talking about, right? It's not like those scientists didn't know better. It's not, that, it's not like they didn't know better in their hearts because they did, you know. So we have to reconnect in deep ways to, to, to living in a way that is compatible with our human nature and with meeting our deepest psychological needs. And that's really the kind of core lesson of Lost Connections and what I learned in all the years I was researching Lost Connections. I cannot wait to read this. Do you, oh, have, it, thank do you have it as an audio book yet? Because it's literally just come out. Yeah, there's an audio book of me reading it. People go to audible.com. Okay. Uh, if you find my voice annoying, I apologise. No, I <laughs> uh, like it. I find uh, it very engaging. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, my publishers always tell me off about it. So this, the, um, if you want to know, find more information about my book, you can hear what Elton John said about it, what Hillary Clinton said about it, what um, loads of amazing people have said about it. Uh, you can go to www.thelostconnections.com. You can also take a quiz there to see how much you know about depression and anxiety and its real causes. You can listen to audio of a load of the people we talked to, like those Amish people. You can hear the audio of me talking to them. They were totally fascinating people. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. It's J O H A N N H A R I 101. The book has a Facebook page. It's uh, slash The Lost Connections. And, uh, you know, I did an interview recently. At the end, the person was like, What's your Twitter? Oh, Instagram is J O H A N N H A R I. And I'll make sure all this is written down, by the way, guys, so that, so that you're not frantically trying to. <laughs> and someone said to me, I did this interview, so it was like, And what's your Snapchat? And I was like, I'm a 39-year-old man, right? <laughs> Only 39-year-old men on Snapchat are certainly pedophiles. You should not, like... I just did a, an Instagram post. Where I was doing Snapchat with my little sister, and I just did an Instagram post where we did, like, a bunch of stupid things, and I was like, I just can't be bothered to do it because I'm too old for it. But it's really fun and a waste of time, but really fun. Yeah, no, no, it's true. But you're a woman, right? I think there's something sinister about me doing that, right? Like, it's just not... I, I will do a lot to promote this <laughs> message, but I'm not fucking going on Snapchat, Good right? You. yeah no you're, exactly. no, you're bad. i have no, you're my bad. limits right exactly <laughs> well we'll make sure that we link to all of that social um johan thank you so much oh thank you so much i really enjoyed it oh me too i'm just yeah i i think i reached out after i heard your um interview on with uh, matt and andy and um but yeah it was before i kind of had the page and so it, it never really happened so i'm so glad that we got to talk about this specifically because it's something that i'm really passionate about um, I'll put a link to all of those things that you said so everyone can find where to get his book right. and to, test, um, you know, to do that little test on what you know about depression. But this has been a pleasure. Thank you. And oh, with it. Totally my pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Uplifting Content Podcast with me, Ioni Butler. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review so that more people can find it. And to make sure you never miss a beat, subscribe to our weekly dose of uplifting content, which is an email from me about the best of uplifting content from that week, be it giveaways, videos, interviews, all the good stuff. And as a bonus, when you subscribe, you'll get a hundred of our inspirational memes to share on your social media. The sign-up link is in the show notes. See you next time.